0: My name is Kyla, welcome to my channel where we talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. Today we're going to be talking about food insecurity and the baby formula crisis, two very, very serious things. This post is in partnership with crowd health healthcare is super important. And unfortunately it's no longer just between you and your doctor. It's sort of become a political tennis ball of sorts. And it's super important to consider healthcare bills are really high because essentially misaligned incentives. There's an incentive for them to want bills to rise because they make more money. They're profit maximizing entities, it's economics, unfortunately, and they can only increase profits essentially by raising your price at the most baseline level. It's no mystery as to why healthcare prices are increasing. So what option is crowd health? So so, pay one low monthly total, less than $200 most of the time, to fund an account that is yours. You can choose whatever doctor you want. And if you have a big bill, CrowdHealth will crowdfund that bill for you so you can pay the doctor or the hospital quickly. You have a personal care advocate who takes care of your questions and you can say goodbye to big call centers and schedule a call with your care advocate and talk to that same person every single time. Stop supporting the broken health insurance industry with your hard earned dollars. Go to joincrowdhealth.com and experience freedom from health insurance. Right now, you can get your first three months for just $99 per month. That's almost 50% off the normal price and a lot less than a high deductible healthcare plan. Go to joincrowdhealth.com and use the promo code Kyla at sign up. That's joincrowdhealth.com, promo code Kyla. And of course, disclaimer, crowd health is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. There's been a theme of domestic protectionism that Zoltan and other analysts have brought up. And essentially, that's the idea that global trade relations are essentially going to deteriorate. Everybody's going to reshore, produce their own things, and no longer will we have this globalized economy that everybody is able to participate in. It's going to be very, very independent. I think that we're seeing what that could look like with the baby formula crisis. So domestic protectionism is this big thesis, right? And Bloomberg had a great article titled The Age of Scarcity." which details why they cut their forecast for GDP by 1.6 trillion dollars. And they're basically talking about how we're kind of running out of everything and that there's a lot of factors behind the fact that we're running out of everything. There are a few core drivers around this. So strained resources and supply chains. So supply chains were disrupted by the pandemic and exacerbated by the war. They rely on just-in-time everything, which only works if everyone is at least pretending to get along. And that's clearly no longer the case. There's input shortage is. So not only is there a shortage of like raw materials, but that shortage of raw materials leads to a shortage of finished goods, uh, which leads to inflation. And there's energy underproduction. Energy is a common denominator, and we clearly just don't have enough of it. And the pandemic. So the pandemic put tremendous pressure on the world economy, energy production, and more. All of that has led to a mismatch between supply and demand, both in terms of the labor force and actual physical production, contributing more to inflationary pressure. And then monetary policy. So fiscal and monetary policy, was very easy during the pandemic, as rightly so. But that created an inflationary bullwhip. Part of that is due to a lack of leadership clarity at the Fed, but part of that is due to the sheer amount of stimulus that was unleashed. And then there's war and wartime sanctions. So it turns out when you invade your neighbor, there are pretty much disastrous consequences. The loss of human life, as always, is number one. But Russia and Ukraine are both large producers of resources, a fertilizer, wheat, oil, and a war disrupts the flows of all that, putting even more human lives at risk. So domestic protectionism, again, there's a tendency for any to start protecting their own stuff. When there are mass shortages in food, countries are going to say, well, you know, I've got to protect my people, therefore I need to stockpile and not export. And then there's climate risks and natural disasters. So the temperature in India is literally hell right now. It's so hot there. And there's these problems of water scarcity, lack of arable land, et cetera. And there's a lack of investment. So as I've said many, many times, you can't have green energy policy without green energy investment. And you really, really can't have any policy without money helping to guide that along. And the world is a puzzle. And some people, Pieces are going missing. There's been this reliance on instability where we've relied on just-in-time inventory, rickety supply chains, and efficient global trade, which relies on us being buddies with everybody. And all of that is at risk now for a variety of reasons, whether that be supply chains, domestic protectionism, energy costs, natural disasters, autocracies versus democracies, or the potential dissolution of democracies in the case of the United States, wartime sanctions. There's a deteriorating climate among deteriorating global relations, and in a globalized world, everything impacts everyone. And some examples are war. So several cities in Ukraine are going to miss their sowing season, which is usually completed by the end of April. And many countries such as Egypt are reliant on Ukrainian wheat imports, which leaves them really vulnerable to food shortages. And with weather, all of that's compounded by these droughts that are happening in America, impacting both the wheat and corn harvest and their supply chain bottlenecks, of course. So boats are stuck, China's COVID zero policy, and all of that has led to these supply chains no longer chugging, reallocated production. So all of this is made worse by energy cost. A core example is a Brazilian mill diversion of their sugarcane to produce ethanol instead of sugar, which leads to a shortage in sugar. So you just have these compounding things that keep on happening and it's potentially a global changing order, maybe in terms of power dynamics, but also in terms of the act being played out on the global stage. Zoltan has written about this extensively and I've written about him writing about it, this concept of restocking, reshoring, rearming, and rewiring. And the big question is, like, we can say all those things, but like, what does that actually look like? Why does it all matter, right? So comparative advantage is pretty much the opposite of domestic protectionism. And it's sort of a core driver of a lot of global growth. Within comparative advantage, countries that are good at one thing produce that thing. So if like country A is really good at producing towels, they're going to produce towels. And country B is maybe really good at producing apples. And so they're going to have trade there. That way, country A can focus on producing towels. Country B can focus on producing apples. And they both benefit because they're not allocating resources to something that they're not good at. And that's kind of how economies grow (laughs) It's kind of going away because countries are shifting towards domestic protectionism or they're conducting French warring, as Secretary Yellen called it. We're going to see that comparative advantage fade away. And thus this shining beacon of productivity will begin to dim and trade will be reduced and tensions between countries will begin to rise because if you're not buddies with somebody, like you might as well battle them, you know? And of course, it's a pretty binary way to look at this. I don't think that the world is going to dissolve into disarray anytime soon, despite what people might say on Twitter. But I do think you're starting Seen lines get drawn in this proverbial sand where everybody still needs each other, but <laughs> it won't be fire and brimstone, but it will be an important thing to pay attention to. And there are these concepts of common denominators. There are common denominators to everything in the world, and we are running out of most of them, at least in the way that we currently produce. So I made this court inputs triangle, and water is at the bottom, oil and energy, and then fertilizer and labor. So water is the most important thing of anything, right? Like it's a large problem that a lot of nations are facing, a lot of states in the United States are facing where it's a long-term problem from environmental degradation, this water scarcity issue. Water is entirely necessary for human life and the production of all goods, and because of climate impacts and irresponsible usage, supplies are continuously at risk. And then that gets into oil and energy, so oil is a baseline input to most processes, and that's been exacerbated by the war in post-pandemic demand, and we're sort of facing a shortage of oil. OPEC Plus cannot produce more because of a lack of spare capacity, they say. I think it's mostly because of misaligned incentives. And and the U.S. shale industry is practicing capital discipline. Iran and Venezuela are politicized sources of oil, but they could help to stem shortages in price volatility. Within fertilizer, Russia is a huge producer of fertilizer as well as wheat and other core inputs for production. This is a dilemma for obvious reasons, but it's also because Russia makes so many equations whole. The inputs to fertilizer, fertilizer itself, oil, et cetera, and all of that is at risk. And labor, of course. So labor people are the most important thing. And there's other variables too, like how we treat these core inputs. Employ America wrote a really great blog post on this titled the physical capacity shortage view of inflation that described how inflation is largely a result of the shortage of physical capacity. Essentially, a lot of plants and equipment are abroad versus within domestic land. So if something happens, it's going to be even worse because that thing is so far away. Infl- As they wrote, inflation is most approximately a reflection of insufficient physical capacity. Additional availability of domestic labor could prove marginally helpful, especially in oil field services and single family home residential construction construction, but is nevertheless not critical to unlocking the physical capacity constraint on production. So the idea is yes, like provide more labor, but mostly reshort and invest in some elements of physical capacity so it isn't as prone to shock. But the big thing here is all of this compounds. The problem is everything piles within itself. So production issues, water scarcity, fertilizer shortages, it's not as simple as just fix one thing and make everything better again. According to the World Resources Institute, by 2050, global demand for food will be 56% higher than it was in 2010. world will need to feed 2 billion more people there's the potential for global food shortage which goes hand in hand with political instability it also highlights the deterioration of the global environment made worse by Russia's invasion everything is more expensive and food costs are expected to rise 5 to 6% this year according to the USDA and that's largely the byproduct of import dependency so in a globalized world you can rely on other countries for inputs and commodities and when times are good that's good but when they're not it's really bad and there's also supply chain So everything has become increasingly difficult to get the necessary materials for. And I know I've said this like a million times by now, but there's also climate conditions where you have this water scarcity, you have the lack of arable land and the lack of sustainable production. So really the most important thing here is that the way that we treat earth now simply cannot continue. And with 30 to 40% of food going to waste, there's a lot of room for improvement here. Most developed nations are very used to a world where everything comes as needed. Like we have Amazon two-day shipping uh, and we can waste as much as we want. <laughs> There's a reason that Shein has a $100 billion evaluation, and it's on the basis of human waste. But these elements of deglobalization, commodities as reserves, and a redrawing of power hierarchies challenge all of that. And that impacts not only food sources, but semiconductors, raw materials, and more. And I think a really horrific example of what this kind of looks like is the baby formula crisis. So the baby formula crisis began in February when Abbott recalled some Similac, Elecare, and Alimentum, sorry if I said that wrong, in infant formula on reports of babies getting bacteria infections. Really bad, like terrible. bacteria was found throughout the plant, but not necessarily in the baby formula area. So Abbott was like, oh, there's no evidence to link our formulas to these infant illnesses. You know, of course they're going to say that. And the plant is now being reopened, but it will take about two months for the baby formula to come back online. And the plant shutdown was not, you know, that wasn't the, it was a core driver, but it wasn't like the core driver. The plant shutdown compounded the supply shock that began with the pandemic, labor inputs, logistics, and exacerbated by trade policy. Nearly 50% of formula is out of stock. That's really bad is worse in cities in Tennessee with out-of-stock rates near 60% and averaging around 50% in cities like Houston, Phoenix, and Richmond. Data simply has a lot of really good data on it. And here's a graph just to show you what that out-of-stock rate looks like, meaning that there's just not baby formulas in those places. Um, And this is a core example of terrible regulation, terrible trade policy with a few attributes. So contamination, having contamination at a factory is a very, very big deal. That's the reason that the Abbott plant in Michigan shut down. This Michigan plant produces about 50% of Abbott's formula and Abbott produces about 40% of the US supplied baby formula. So it was a literal recipe for disaster. It was con- concentration and contamination messed all of that up. And the contamination was first detected in September, as reported by Bloomberg. And the FDA waited until now to do anything about it, which is just like horrible. It's really bad. The government, so the US government buys about 50% of all baby formula through a program called WIC, which helps lower income women get help for their babies, lower income families, but they can only purchase a certain type of formula. Abbott, <laughs> you'll See, uh, Avid, the parent company behind the plant shutdown has two-thirds of these WIC contracts. Of course they do. It's largely formula for babies that had special nutrition needs. So there isn't a lot of alternatives if this formula all of a sudden, I don't know, gets contaminated at a factory. So this really impacts, of course, lower income families because they don't have the resources to go to eBay or to pay for other solutions. And to note, 70% of all babies in this WIC program are partially reliant on formulas. I gathered the data from the WIC site here in this Google sheet if you want to go check it out you can see how reliant we are on formula, how reliant these families are. This gets into market consolidation. So part of the problem with the baby formula situation is that four companies control 90% of the supply due to a combination of tariffs, restricted trade. And that's definitely not a super diverse market. So of course there's going to be a lack of supply. So when one plant shuts down like with what happened with Abbott and all of a sudden you, you don't have baby formula and this is concentration. So the way that us regulation happens in the baby formula market is not, I know it's, it's going to be unpopular to say, but it's true. It's not a result of capitalism. It's actually a result of terrible regulation that theoretically prevents capitalism from doing what it's supposed to do theoretically. I don't know what capitalism would do in this situation, but capitalism theoretically should be able to come in and be like, hey, actually, you know, like here's innovation in the baby market. But because of the regulators being so stringent and inflexible, there's little room for new interns or innovation in space because like, why would you want to deal with the FDA? So this gets into protectionism where we restrict formula imports from everyone, the EU, Canada, and we tax. Tact- tariffs on top of it. So the U S doesn't want to import formula from Europe because of you know profits or whatever, but apparently the, also the labeling is weird, which is just, it's just ridiculous. And the EU is the world's biggest producer of baby formula and regulation is just like, no, that's not for us. And you might say, well, what about Canada and the United States, Mexico, Canada agreement that replaced NAFTA of the Trump era and to the triumph of the dairy industry has restrained how much baby formula Canada can export to the entire world. And they actually kneecapped their entire industry in the process because why would you build in an industry that can't export its product anywhere? If you think about the regulation of this, the FDA heavily regulates the space to the point of making it move backwards. And to caveat, like regulation is super important and regulating things that babies eat is super, super important. But the FDA is doing way too much in the wrong areas and they should spend more time worrying about the Abbott factory contamination and less time seizing honestly perfectly safe European baby formula. And I know I just started like yelling right there, but it is so frustrating to me that this is like a thing. There's parents that are resorting to drastic measures to try and find solutions to feed their babies. Babies need all the nutrients that they can get to develop and cow's milk is not a great source of iron. Bloomberg points out, and diluting formula dilutes the nutritional value of it and more and breastfeeding is not as easy as people think it is. You can't just turn these on and they start working. Some babies need the supplements of formula, they have allergies, and some mothers can't produce formula, and some families do not have a mother in them, so they rely on formula for their babies. It's not as simple as just, oh, what if we return into the olden times. And all of them, all of them should have access to formula no matter what. The Biden administration flew in 70,000 pounds of formula from Europe, which will address 15% of supply needs, which is great. But the thing is, it just, it didn't have to be this way. And we keep on learning how important it is to have resilient supply chains. And it's a combination of a diverse set of producers, supportive trade policy, and probably maybe we should throw in maternal, paternal, family leave. So when you have a baby, you don't just get six weeks of unpaid leave. And to note, there do seem to be some solutions depending on the baby. I purees, some animal milks, healthychildren.org, and some good solutions. And I do want to apologize for losing my temper a little bit. I've been a little bit in the weeds with this, this crisis, and I've made some TikTok videos about it in the comment section. Just, you know, you lose your faith in, faith in humanity really, really quickly. There's some people who the level of misinformation that they've received and continue to hang on to is just concerning. And so some final thoughts, what are some solutions? I do actually think that the government has a role here, as we've seen with the crypto industry the baby formula industry and more proper regulation is the key to an industry being successful or not just shuttering down if one of their plants go offline the government needs to (laughs) to just be better but we all know that human nature prevents a lot of politics from um, being successful which is kind of like the paradox of progress the goal is not to abolish the fda but rather understand why they didn't move on abbott uh, probably because abbott is so much of supply and create a space where alternatives can come in this is like screaming into the void at this point but the ecosystem kind of sucks. It's really great for anybody who gets their little fingers into like what they want to do, but it's clearly detrimental to the rest of the country. Not that that matters at this point in private markets. I've harped on this before, but what's going on? <laughs> what's going on in the venture capital space? Some firms that are focused on, you know, productive tech or changing the world, making it better. Uh, and I understand that we have to have consumer social and that like, that's super important, right? Like obviously, but It seems like a strange allocation of resources sometimes. It doesn't make sense to explain that companies inventing in deep tech or ag tech or supply chain tech don't have a high enough exit multiple for investment. And like, I get it. I do. I do. I do. Because maybe they don't. But I also don't get it. In times of emergency, which we've been in for the past two years, I think that capital allocators have a responsibility to invest in emergency things that will make the world truly better. And it's honestly kind of sickening to see the VCs on Twitter do these threads about investing in bear markets and it's kind of like, you're the problem. (laughs) But I do think that what we're seeing with baby formula could be a microcosm and a very important microcosm for what a world could look like if we go into full domestic protectionism mode. That's what Zoltan has been calling for. That's what the US sort of seemed to lean into for the past few years. And we're seeing the consequences of that sort of play out in real time. The baby formula crisis is not a result of domestic protectionism per se, but it's definitely something that could be used as an example of what that could look like on the broad global stage. And like I said, I don't think it's zero to 60 in terms of domestic protectionism. Everyone still needs each other, but it's important to watch this stuff. And like, there's a lot that we can do to make the world better. We can reuse wastewater, we can stop wasting food, we can use different types of greenhouses, seawater water farming, alternative protein sources, vertical farming, hydroponics, improve logistics, import streams, and invest in new ag technology. Because ultimately, the world is as good as we make it. And so we should make it a very good world indeed. Yeah. Thanks so much for hanging out. And I apologize for getting my temper a little riled up during the baby formula discussion. It's just really sad and upsetting for me. And I think for, you know, my friends that have babies and for friends that are thinking about having babies. And it's like one of those things where it's like, I, the world is unfair. The world is always going to be fundamentally unfair. And you know, if you look at developing nations, this is constantly a crisis for them. So there's just so much that, so much work that has to be done. There's things that we can do to make it better. So thanks so much for spending time with me. Thanks so much for hanging out and I hope that you're doing well and I'll talk to y'all soon. Bye.